Father, I pray to you, Lord, that you would anoint me to preach your word faithfully. I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them uh, ears and our ears to, to hear only that which is faithfully preached. And Lord, we pray for the work of your spirit among us this afternoon. Because if your spirit is not present and doesn't ultimately work among us, then everything we do in the next hour, Lord, is, is simply for, for naught uh, and is of no lasting value. And so, Lord, work among us and transform us through the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we'll read our text shortly, but before we do, it's been two weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians. We had our outdoor service last week. We enjoyed that. That was wonderful. But now we need to get our mind wrapped back around where Paul was in 1 Corinthians. And so I want to take a few seconds and just sort of uh, remind us of, of where we're at and, and kind of how we got there and set the larger context. This passage completes a major section of Paul's letter spanning chapters 11 through 14. In fact, in this section of the letter, Paul speaks to four big issues that are deeply connected with each other. Orderliness, the church, spiritual gifts, and love. Those are the big themes across chapters 11 through 14. Now in chapter 11, Paul addressed two important topics. He talked about the submission of a wife to her husband and how that is to be respected in the order and structure of the worship service. And he also talked about the order and the sanctity of the Lord's table. In chapter 12, Paul explains the role of the spiritual gifts and their purpose to serve the common good of the church. He describes the vast diversity of the saints joined together into a profound oneness, every member woven into the tapestry of God's redemptive community by divine choice and by divine purpose. In fact, Paul's words here rise, raise up within us a high view of the church, doesn't it? We learn that the church is no mere human organization, nor is it something we attach ourselves to for the sake of tradition or to satisfy some inner urge for religious obligation. In fact, in light of the church's true nature, Paul explains that the spiritual gifts are not intended to exalt the individual bearing the gift, but rather the gifts exist to build up God's redemptive community into Christ's likeness. Now, at the beginning of the letter, Paul reveals that the church in Corinth was enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 1-5. From this and similar statements throughout the letter, we learn that Corinth enjoyed a rich manifestation of the speech gifts. But rather than steward these gifts for their mutual upbuilding, the church at Corinth was burdened by prideful divisiveness. Apparently, those who authentically bore the more publicly visible speech gifts stewarded their gifts with arrogance, and those who lacked them sought them out of a competitive envy. And so in chapter 13, Paul sets forth his shocking clarification that spiritual giftedness in and of itself is not a sign of spiritual maturity. 
spiritual giftedness in and of itself is not a sign of spiritual maturity. Rather, Paul exalts the supremacy of love, explaining that nothing is more necessary and fundamental to the church than the love that he describes. It is the very thing whose expression testifies of the church's divine possession and the church's supernatural agency. Paul explains with weighty force that apart from the manifestation of divine love at the heart of our actions, our spiritual giftedness is of no account. We are inconsequential and irrelevant to God's redemptive purposes and impoverished of any future reward. Simply put, without love, all ministry is failure. In chapter 14, Paul's attention is focused on the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Paul's emphasis is driven by the circumstances and the needs of of the Corinthian church. Now, as we've already touched on, the Corinthians were preoccupied with, in a most unloving way, with the display of the speech gifts, particularly tongues. In the first half of chapter 14, Paul explains the superiority of prophecy over tongues because of prophecy's immediate capacity to edify and build up the body. Now today, we'll look at the second half of chapter 14. Paul closes this section of the letter by providing specific instructions on how tongues and prophecy are to be regulated within the context of the Corinthians' gathered worship. Similar to the irreverence of their gathered meal in chapter 11, the Corinthians' gathered worship had become a frenzied competition of self-interests. Paul communicates a series of specific instructions aimed at establishing an environment built on order, self-control, and concern for others. In fact, some scholars refer to Paul's instructions in this section of the letter as Paul's ethics of controlled speech. Paul's instructions are more than merely a practical solution to a local problem. They are deeply theological. Paul's teaching is anchored in the larger notion that God's actions are always consistent with the orderliness of his character. And so, if Christian worship is to achieve its intended purpose, it must reflect the ordered character of God. So kind of with that as background, let's now read the text. So join me, if you will, or read along uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 26 through the end of the chapter. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, there's a couple of questions that come to mind as we read this passage. In fact, let's just be honest with ourselves and call out the problem child that likely tripped most people's alarm. Verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. What does Paul mean by this? Are women banned from all forms of verbal activity in the church? And as disconcerting as that possibility might be, why does Paul seem to press this point yet even harder, going as far to say that it is shameful for a woman to speak in church? What's going on here? And as huge as those questions are, they're actually not our only questions. What does Paul mean by speaking in tongues in verse 27? What's the nature of prophecy that Paul refers to in verses 29 through 33? I mean, weren't prophets supposed to be 100% accurate all the time? And if that's the case, well, then why does Paul direct the body to weigh what is said? What does Paul mean by this statement? The spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. And how does that relate to verse 33? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And on top of all this, much of this chapter is about tongues and prophecy, neither of which we recognize or practice in our contemporary situation. So, apart from any clarity and possible application coming from the women's speech issue, what, does, what do we do with all of this? And to add even more weight to our backpack, it turns out that the underlying Greek is very complex and the whole passage is awash with translation challenges. So it kind of seems a bit daunting, doesn't it? But here's the good news. God has spoken. God has spoken, and he's spoken to be understood. Now, it might take some work, but God intended, God intended to communicate to us through his inspired word, and therefore his communication is not beyond our reach. So by carefully observing the text, paying attention to the apostles' train of thought, and standing on the shoulders of those who are skilled in the nuances of the Greek, will answer all of these questions and identify a faithful application to today's, of today's text. So let me begin with the main point. The main point of our text is revealed by two verses that bookend our passage. The first is the last statement in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. This is a why statement. The second is verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. This is a how statement. The what details are everything in between these two verses. So if we combine these two bookend statements, 
we get a clear expression of the key point of Paul's argument. Let all things be done orderly in order to build up the church. That's the driving point of the text. As we look at the details of Paul's argument, we discover that Paul's train of thought breaks down into at least two topics. One, his instructions concerning tongues in verses 27 and 28, and his instructions concerning prophecy clearly seen in verses 29 through the first half of verse 33. Now, I say at least two topics because one of the first things we need to figure out in terms of the structure of Paul's argument is whether or not Paul's instructions about women is a third topic that is separate and distinct from the other two or whether Paul's instructions about women is further detail related to one of the two prior topics. Now, in order to explain the outline of the text that I'll share with you in a few seconds, I have to present a bit of a spoiler. Right? Paul's instructions about women's speech in verses 33b through 35 is, without doubt, a continuation of his teaching on prophecy. Now, we'll talk about this in more detail shortly, but for now, I want to stress that Paul's argument fundamentally consists of two topics, not three. So the structure of the text can be outlined as follows. We have our opening principle in verse 26, and then we have Paul's instructions regarding tongues in verses 27 and 28. And he offers, he, he, he insists upon restraint versus the number of speakers and the necessity of interpretation in verse 27, and restraint in the absence of interpretation addressed in verse 28. And then he provides instructions concerning prophecy in verses 29 through 35. And there's three restraints he provides here. Again, similar to above, a restraint on the number of prophetic speakers, and in this case, the need for evaluation versus interpretation. Verse 29. He then imposes restraint upon the prophetic speaker in verses 30 through the first half of 33. And then he uh, requires restraint on women, in this case, with respect to the evaluation of prophetic speech, which we'll see in a few seconds, in verses 33b through 35. And then he provides a rebuke and warning in verses 36 through 38, and finally, a summary encouragement and closing principle in the last two verses, verses 39 and 40. And so that's the outline of our passage. So let's look at Paul's opening principle. Verse 26 begins with the phrase, what then, brothers? Now that clearly links everything Paul's about to say through the end of the chapter to everything he's already said since the beginning of the chapter. So in other words, verses 26 through 40 are Paul's specific instructions to the Corinthian church in response to the general exhortations and explanations that he just provided in verses 1 through 25. He then continues, when you come together, each one has a hymn a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, Paul refers to the church's weekly gathering for instruction and worship, either before or after the Lord's Supper that Paul described in chapter 11. Paul itemizes a list of spiritual gifts that he knew would be publicly shared as part of their gathering. The items Paul mentions are not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. How do we know that? Well, we know that because the four lists of spiritual gifts presented in the New Testament are not exact matches of each other. 
So you can compare a second list of spiritual gifts in the same letter in chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. You can look in Romans 12, beginning in verse 6, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Now, what each of the five items in Paul's current list actually do have in common with each other is that each item has been previously mentioned in the very same chapter, in the first 25 verses of chapter 14. And so after calling out this specific list of gifts, Paul goes on to present his principal statement that will serve as his rationale for everything else that follows. Let all things be done for building up. Now this is hardly a new idea, as the notion of building up others has been elevated by Paul throughout the letter. We only have to go back to passages like 8.1 or 10.23 to see examples of that. But in our current context, Paul is most certainly talking specifically about building up the church. Why? We'll go back and look at verse 4. Paul explains that the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then again in verse 12, Paul exhorted his readers to strive to excel in building up the church. Paul's instructions that follow are motivated by the apostle's desire to encourage the public expression of spiritual gifts that build up the entire body while suppressing public expression of the spiritual gifts that, at least at the moment, build up only the gift bearer, as well as suppressing public displays that in fact aren't genuine expressions of the Spirit at all. Now I also want you to notice that while the rest of Paul's instructions address three of the items on Paul's list, tongues, interpretation, and prophecy, the remaining two items are never mentioned again, namely hymns and lessons. Now it could be that Paul didn't feel compelled to address these items because at least one of these items, that is lessons, and possibly both, were not spontaneous in nature, and thus they weren't subject, perhaps, to some of the abuses that were occurring in Corinth. But I think a larger implication, the larger implication here is that Paul is not merely regulating the presentation of tongues and prophecy. His concern is wider than that, as indicated by a bigger list than the things he actually talks about. He's laying down a timeless principle that must guide our approach to public worship. Public worship must have as its objective the building up of the entire body. And as we'll see, the guiding factors intended to keep things on track are order, self-control, and a concern for others. Paul addresses the first of these two topics in verses 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue... Let them be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. In verse 27, Paul provides three stipulations. First, he limits the number of utterances. Second, he insists that these utterances happen one at a time. And three, he insists that these utterances are interpreted into an intelligible message for the benefit of all. Now, Paul uses, Paul's use of the phrase at most suggests that many were 
probably eager to display their charismatic giftedness in the midst of the assembly. His insistence that they speak in turn also suggests that there may have been numerous people speaking in tongues at the same time. Perhaps two or more speakers felt so convinced that they were inspired by the Spirit that they felt compelled to proceed even if they spoke over top of one another. In fact, it's not hard to imagine that what Paul was seeking to avoid was the very, very situation he described a few, a, few passages, a few verses earlier in verse 23, where he said, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Now at the beginning of chapter 2, I'm sorry, at the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, Paul explains that the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. However, in our current passage, not only does Paul limit the number of those who would speak publicly in tongues, one or two, but reluctantly allowing up to three, Paul makes it vividly clear that any spiritual experience that finds its expression in tongues is prohibited from public expression unless that experience can be made communicable to all. See, Paul's rationale is simple. In order for such an experience to edify those gathered, everyone present must be made aware of the grounds and content of the speaker so that all may join in, all may join in the sanctity and the worship of the moment. And if this is not possible, then that expression must be restrained. Paul explains in verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. The underlying Greek decisively refers to the idea of private devotion, that is, in the home, by themselves, as opposed to some sort of isolated, individual uh, communion with God while amidst the assembly or amidst the congregation, as some might want to suggest. You all might have had experiences where you go into a charismatic body and those speaking in tongues cluster themselves together and branch off into a different area of the church while the non-tongue speakers are over here. Paul decisively rejects that. Okay, that's exactly what he's saying is not to occur. If the expression cannot be made intelligible to all, it is to be restrained. They are to... Uh, they are to um, uh, talk privately, they are to speak to himself and to God privately, not amidst the public gathering. So while this last point is settled, there's some debate about whether or not the Greek construction of the condition, if there is no one to interpret, refers to someone other than the one speaking or the one speaking themselves. Now in chapter 12, verse 10, and again in verse 30, Paul does indeed describe speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues as different gifts bestowed on different people. However, Greek scholar and exegetical commentator Anthony Thistleton presents a very strong case on the basis of the Greek grammar that Paul is in fact, in this case, referring to the same person. And this would certainly explain why Paul argues in the same chapter, 14 verse 13, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. 
Now, Fisselton offers the following translation of verse 27 and 28, which I think makes this very, very clear. His recommended translation is as follows. If it is in a tongue that someone speaks, let only two or at most three speak in turn and let the one who speaks put it into words. However, if he or she cannot put it into words, let them remain silent in the assembled congregation and address God privately. Now, I favor Thistleton's perspective, but regardless of whether the interpreter is the speaker themselves or someone else, the prevailing factor in play is the self-control that Paul imposes upon the speaker. You see, the Greek world consisted of many religious groups that claimed to have experiences of divine possession in which the speaker allegedly lost all sense of personal awareness and discretion. And this perspective is captured well by the ancient writer Philo, a contemporary of Paul, who is infamous for his efforts to blend Jewish thought with Greek philosophy. He described the psalmist who wrote, Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37.4, as moved to an ecstasy of heavenly and divine love and whose whole mind was snatched up in a holy frenzy by a divine possession. But Paul's instructions with respect to the one speaking in tongues and later the one prophesying operate with the certainty that the Spirit's gift is under the speaker's control. Each speaker can choose whether to speak out in a tongue or prophetic speech, or remain silent. The Greek viewpoint celebrating spiritual ecstasy and frenzy is soundly rejected by Paul, who does not view tongues or prophetic speech as an uncontrollable emotional experience that overpowers the judgment and discretion of the individual. The clarity of Paul's view is heightened even further later in the text when Paul explains that the promptings of the Spirit never result in confusion or disordered outbursts. We'll see that in verse 33a. Specifically, the gift of tongues, or any spiritual gift for that matter, is never an experience of some sort of divine ecstasy that renders the recipient in some sort of uncontrolled, trance-like state whereby the individual loses self-awareness and rational judgment. In fact, It's important that we remember self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Galatians 5.23 God never operates in contradiction to his own character and the Spirit will never operate in a way that undermines his purpose. So any gift provided by the Holy Spirit for the building up of everyone would in fact be undermined and contradicted by the Spirit's own actions if the Holy Spirit fell upon this person or that person in such a way that edification to all was disrupted or confused and some or all of the body's members missed out on what the Spirit decided to communicate. And so as one commentator notes, Fee in particular, he says, quote, It is indeed the Spirit who speaks, but he speaks through the controlled instrumentality of the believer's own mind and tongues, And as Thistleton comments, any notion of a community working itself up by psychological devices 
designed to heighten emotion would be entirely alien to Paul's ethics of controlled speech. And so by way of application, I think Paul has bequeathed to the church a principle of discernment, a principle of discernment that we can objectively apply in our present age to distinguish between authentic and false manifestations of the Spirit, and here's the beauty, independent of denominational traditions, independent of personal comfort, and even independent of the presumed sincerity of the practitioner. Okay, so what is this principle? Well, simply put, any alleged manifestation of the Spirit that is characterized by any combination of disorder, frenzy, ecstatic experiences, especially when the practitioner claims to be empowered and incapable of self-regulation, such things are not the work of the Holy Spirit. Why? Two reasons. One, they violate the notion of self-control demanded by Paul. And two, as we'll see later in the text, they are not a reflection of the orderliness of God's character. So let's move on and consider Paul's instructions regarding prophetic speech in verses 29 through 35. In verse 29, Paul writes, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, even though Paul favors prophecy over tongues because of its greater usefulness in building up the church, we see that prophecy, too, needed to be regulated according to Paul's ethics of controlled speech. What's particularly noteworthy in verse 29 is the congregation's action to weigh what is said. Now, depending upon your translation, uh, your version might read evaluate, pass judgment, discern, or judge. The most precise English translation of the Greek would be to distinguish between. The problem with that translation is it's not considered acceptable English to end a sentence by saying, let the others distinguish between. And so Thistleton offers the translation, let the others sift what is said. Paul's instructions reveal that whatever his notions of prophecy might be, it's clearly different than the Old Testament prophets whose inspired words were infallible. And anyone who presumed to speak for Yahweh, but whose words were found to be false, were to be put to death. We can read about that in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. Well, it's clear that we're not dealing with the same kind of expectation. The most likely explanation for this shift is that unlike the Old Testament prophets, to whom God's revelation involved, at least in part, God's audible speech, that likely wasn't the case now, as the prophetic speaker was at risk of confusing his or her own internal thoughts with the Spirit's inspired speech, or at least drifting from one to the other, perhaps even without their immediate awareness. And thus, Paul directs the prophet's listeners to sift what is said. What are they to distinguish between? Well, they are to distinguish between speech that was truly God-given and consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the pastoral needs of the current situation, from speech that was merely human in origin, perhaps even reflecting the speaker's self-interests, self-deceptions, or just plain error, all packaged under the guise of prophecy. Now, Paul doesn't provide his readers 
with specific criteria they were to use to sift or to weigh the prophetic message, but there's some reasonable inferences we could make based upon what, based upon what Paul has already emphasized earlier in the letter. So, for example, criteria that might be relevant. Is the message consistent with the tradition of Jesus? Is the message consistent with what Paul has already taught them? Does the message encourage sacrificial love for others? Does the message build up, encourage, or console the church community? Does the message cause another brother or sister to stumble? Does the message lead outsiders to come to faith by reproving, convicting, and convincing them that God is indeed present in their midst? Now, as one commentator reminds us, this principle doesn't mean that the majority is always right. And it poses the danger that the listeners will become hypercritical rather than responding in the obedience of faith. But it does reveal Paul's desire that those speaking prophetically were not to regard themselves as infallible and unanswerable to the church body. Now, our contemporary situation isn't organized around a multiple number of speakers claiming to speak prophetically. And some commentators have drawn a parallel between the first century notion of prophetic speech and contemporary preaching. Now, we don't have time this afternoon to work through this this debate, but there are at least two applications we can draw out of Paul's teaching thus far, and both are related to the ministry of the Word. The first application is the need for accuracy and precision in the public preaching and teaching of God's Word. This is especially true in light of the propensity we have as fallen human beings to unwittingly impose our own self-interest or pet issues upon the text. There's a certain sense of weightiness and fear that should be pressed into any one of us any time we steward the public handling of God's word. And this weightiness should and must drive us to prayer. You see, we simply cannot properly wield God's word in our own strength. We simply cannot properly wield God's word in our own strength. The second application is the burden upon those listening. So let's start with the obvious. The members of the Corinthian church couldn't sift and weigh what was said if they weren't carefully paying attention to what was being spoken. And less obviously, they wouldn't be equipped to reliably sift and weigh what was spoken if they didn't have a competent grasp of what the scriptures said to begin with. So the question is, are you a faithful listener of what your elders or Sunday school teachers prepare each week? Do you invest effort to internalize what is said? Do you participate in community groups to share in the discussion of the sermon and benefit from others' insights? And if legitimately hindered from community groups, do you discuss the sermon or Sunday school at home, with your spouse, with your family? A larger question is this. In what ways do you organize or discipline your lifestyle so that each week's engagement with the Word truly, I mean truly, influences the depth and breadth of your faith? We need to be faithful listeners. All moving on. After describing his general instruction regarding prophetic speech in verse 29, 
Paul adds some further conditions. Paul speaks to the first of these two conditions in verse 30. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Now, similar to the enthusiasm of those who sought to speak in tongues, it's not hard to imagine Paul's restraint aimed at those who viewed themselves as wise and spiritually gifted, who may have tended to dominate the assembly, competing with each other for airtime, and resistant to those evaluating their statements. And so as before, the driving factors of Paul's direction are order, self-control, and concern for others. If another was moved, presumably by the Spirit, to add fresh insight or other spontaneous revelation to what the first prophet had said, the first speaker was to restrain themselves and defer to the second individual. In verse 31, Paul explains, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Once again, it's hard to exaggerate Paul's emphasis upon order, self-control, and concern for the building up of others. The issue on Paul's mind is ensuring that the one who has the gift of prophetic speech also has the self-awareness and the self-control to stop speaking when circumstances warrant it, in order that all may learn and all be encouraged according to the Spirit's desire. Now, though it may not be obvious at first, Paul's concern for self-control among the prophetic speakers is brought to bear with even greater emphasis in the rest of Paul's explanation continued in verse 32. Paul clarifies, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, there are a few challenges to the translation of the underlying Greek. And the rendering in most English translations lead many to see this statement as Paul's charge to the prophet's listeners to weigh the speaker's words against the larger council of Scripture. But that sense doesn't quite fit the Greek. According to Thistleton, due to some nuanced grammatical details, the verb translated subject more precisely refers to the idea of subordinating oneself or placing oneself under control the reflective quality of the verb being key. Also, the precise meaning of the word translated spirits is notoriously difficult to pin down, but in the current grammatical context, almost certainly refers to the spiritual utterances of the prophets themselves. And so, once again, Thistleton's helpful here, where he offers the following as a far more improved translation of verse 32. And the spiritual utterances of the prophets are subject to the prophet's control. And so what we have here then isn't an exhortation to the prophet's listeners, but an even further advancement of Paul's demand for the self-control of the speaker. If Paul is indeed referring to the spiritual utterances of the prophets, he's assuming that the speaker is authentically led by the Spirit. In Paul's mind, in Paul's mind, the self-control exercised by the prophetic speaker is no less a part of the Spirit's work than the content of the utterance itself. That Paul sees both the content of the prophet's utterance and the ongoing awareness and self-control of the prophet 
as the product of the Spirit's work is made even more plain in Paul's subsequent statement in verse 33a. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, as already mentioned, not only does this statement relate to Paul's immediate train of thought, it's a principal statement that shapes Paul's entire argument from verse 26 through the end of the chapter. The sense of this verse is made a bit clearer when we understand the word peace to mean harmony. That is, God is not scattered or conflicted, but is in harmony with himself. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, in harmony with himself. Two important clarifications or implications can be drawn from the present context of Paul's statement. One, God never acts in contradiction to his own character. And two, God's character is always displayed in the means God prescribes to achieve his purposes. Okay? God's character is one of order and discipline, not confusion and disorganization. And thus, true worship must reflect these qualities, this very same character. So whether we're talking about speaking in tongues, prophetic speech, or any spiritual gift, the Spirit will never operate in a way that undermines the orderliness of God's means. Therefore, the Spirit does not inspire God's people in a way that promotes disorder and turbulence. Now this brings us to Paul's second of two further conditions regarding the prophetic scenario. Now, as I've already alluded to earlier, verses 34 and 35 are problematic to many. On the surface, Paul seems to be saying, if you want peace and order in church, don't permit women to speak. Now, is that really what Paul's saying? Is Paul prohibiting all forms of women's participation in the public gathering of the body? Or I should say women's verbal participation in the public gathering of the body. Is Paul advocating that in church life, women are to be seen but not heard? Or is he speaking to a particular set of circumstances? Well, I'm convinced that the answer is the second, not the first. Paul is not, Paul is not universally banning women's speech from the assembly. Rather, the apostle's restraint has something to do with this topic of prophecy. Well, now, why do I say that? Well, I think there's two significant pieces of evidence that shift us in this direction, that help us see this. To begin with, a seen-but-not-heard ban on all women's speech is simply inconsistent with Paul's other writings as well as Scripture at large. For example, a few chapters earlier, in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul wrote, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now notice that Paul doesn't take exception later in his explanation of the fact that the woman was praying or even prophesying. And the prophet Joel, the source of Peter's Pentecost sermon, is also helpful here. As part of Joel's description of the new covenant, Joel himself prophesies in chapter 2, verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters 
shall prophesy. And then, of course, there are folks like Prissa, who together with her husband Aquila were instrumental in explaining the way of God more accurately to Apollos, as recorded in Acts 18. So there's no doubt that Paul is limiting some aspect of a woman's role in the body with respect to public speech, but he's not unconditionally restraining women from every form of verbal participation in body life. Now, in addition to that observation, I also say this on the basis of a careful consideration of context, a careful consideration of Paul's train of thought. Earlier, I talked about the structure of Paul's argument and whether he was ultimately raising three issues or two. In other words, are Paul's words about women's speech distinct from his earlier instruction about tongues and prophecy, or are they a further clarification related to one of these two groups, one of these two topics? Well, I think the answer to that question is revealed by Paul himself in verse 39. Look at the text, where Paul presents his readers with the first half of his closing summary. He says, So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. You see, Paul only summarized two things. If his limitation upon women's speech was a universal ban, I believe Paul would have included this topic in his summary statement. But as it is, he didn't. So in Paul's mind, I'm convinced he's thinking in terms of two topics, not three. And therefore, whatever Paul means by his statements in verses 33 through 35, they're further conditions that are somehow related to this topic of prophecy. So the million-dollar question is, what exactly does Paul mean by this prohibition that women should keep silent? and they are not permitted to speak. To understand this further, it's important that we remind ourselves of Paul's instruction in verse 29, in which he required the assembled church to sift and weigh what the prophet said. And so it seems to best understand Paul's language in verse it seems that the best way to understand Paul's language in verse 34 as that which is prohibiting a women's participation in this sifting and weighing. Now, this understanding is reinforced by the details of the very next verse in verse 35, where Paul writes, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, I know this is a little bit tedious, but please bear with me because I think this will all snap together and make sense. The Greek grammar in verse 35 includes a certain intensity that's not apparent in our English translations. It's not apparent with the English phrase, let them ask. The meaning of the verb ask is more akin to the idea of a legal or reasoned inquiry to discern that which is truly authoritative. Thus, a wife's asking that Paul assigns to the home closely parallels the sifting and weighing he commanded earlier. So in light of this parallelism, what Paul is likely saying in verses 34 and 35 is that women are not to participate in the public sifting and weighing of the prophet's speech. Instead, their sifting and weighing should be done with their husband in private. And so what Paul is ultimately clarifying here is that men have final responsibility for publicly interpreting 
and defending Scripture among the body. You see, Paul's clarification to the Corinthian church is not an isolated solution to a local problem. This clarification is part of the scriptural doctrine of headship and submission that is rooted in God's ordered design. And thus, Paul's teaching applies to all the churches in all ages. Paul's teaching in verses 34 through 35 closely parallels his teaching in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. So listen again to our current passage and then listen carefully to the 1 Timothy passage. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. In 1 Timothy, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she, shall be, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And as I mentioned up on the slide, additional passages that develop Scripture's doctrine of headship and submission include 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and of course Paul's earlier statements in our same letter, uh, chapter 11. Uh, uh, Yeah, chapter 11. Now, what's clear from today's passage, along with these other passages, is that a woman is to submit herself in the church family in the same way she submits herself in marriage. That is, she is not to take upon herself leading the church or teaching the church, but is to support, encourage, and actively help the men in their leadership roles. Now, returning to the parallel nature of our current passage with Paul's words to Timothy, I want you to notice that each time Paul addresses the topic of submission, he appeals to the authority of the Old Testament creation account. That was obvious in 1 Timothy, but perhaps it's a little less obvious in our current passage. But that's exactly what the Apostle is referring to when he says they should be in submission as the law also says. You see, Paul is appealing to the creation account that he alluded to earlier in 11, 8, and 9, in which Paul's larger argument was the certainty of God's ordered headship. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of every man, and the head of a woman is her husband. And so Paul's phrase, as the law also says, is his shorthand for retrieving the logic of his argument in chapter 11. Paul's appeal to the Old Testament creation accounts makes it clear that the issue of headship and submission flow out of God's divine design. And this is exactly where Paul's emphasis upon a woman's submission snaps together with the theme of order and self-control that has been driving Paul's argument thus far. You see, Paul's words are a call for Christian women to conduct themselves in a way that demonstrates their respect for and delight in God's created order. A created order that advances God's purpose and harmony through functional distinctions among the sexes 
and through the authority distributed along with those distinctions. According to Paul's inspired perspective, a woman's public participation in the weighing of prophetic speech is essentially the same as teaching and leading and is thus a contradiction of how God's created order is to be displayed within the church. Now, nevertheless, these are still hard words. How are you, as a woman, to embrace and display these truths when the voices of culture and worldliness nurture every fleshly vestige of thinking that resists these truths? Well, perhaps a supporting principle is helpful, or at least worthy of your consideration. A wife's submission to her husband, or a woman's submission to the male headship of the body, and by that I mean submission to the idea that it is the male leaders who are to lead the church in teaching uh, and instruction. I don't mean that they're subject to every male in the church the same way they are to their husband, so let me be clear on that. I don't think that's scriptural. Um, But a wife's submission to her husband or her submission to the male headship of the body is not rooted in the premise that she's less relevant or significant than her husband or men in general. You see, we've been trained to equate significance with function. Think about that for a second. Is that not true? Everything we see and hear in the world teaches us that your significance is derived from what you do or what you accomplish. And this is why most men feel compelled to strive for bigger jobs with bigger salaries. And this is why we like fancy titles. Whether we acknowledge it with words or not, we operate with the axiom that our function determines our significance. And so when we perceive that our function is constrained, something inside of us believes that our significance is threatened. But God's ways always work in the opposite direction of man's ways. And in the economy of grace, our significance is not rooted in our function, but in our identity. What's our identity? We are redeemed image bearers, profoundly united to Christ individually and interdependently. We read in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in our present letter, in 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12, For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We simply must immerse ourselves in what these verses tell us. We simply must steep and stain the very core of our being with these truths so that we would think rightly about who we are in light of who Christ is. Our significance flows from our identity, 
not our function. And our identity has been profoundly, decisively, and permanently attached to Christ's identity. And that's liberating. Because that liberates us to both respect and delight in the diversity of function that God has distributed across his ordered purposes. So let's recap a bit. Paul's words do not unconditionally prohibit women's verbal participation in public church life. Rather, the apostles' words restrained women from participating in the church's weighing and sifting that was to occur following prophetic discourse. Such conduct would undermine the principles of headship and submission that were to characterize the church. But a woman's restraint, a woman's self-control, reveals her respect for and delight in the goodness and the supremacy of God's ordered purposes. Once again, drawing out an application or two might be helpful. As before, our contemporary situation isn't organized around the body's public sifting and weighing of prophetic discourse. But we made the point earlier that by God's design, men have final responsibility for publicly interpreting and defending Scripture among the body. So ladies, the question for you is this. In what ways might your public conduct yield to or resist this truth? Do you conduct yourself in a way that demonstrates respect for and delight in God's created order? Does your public conduct bear evidence of your submission to your husband's headship? Does your public conduct build up your husband or bring him down? Those are hard questions. Let's move on to Paul's closing verses. After concluding his teaching on women's submission in the church, Paul addresses the entire body and provides a final response to everything he said thus far concerning tongues and prophecy. In fact, Paul's question in verse 36 seems to follow naturally from his questions at from his question at the beginning of 26, where Paul asked, what then, brothers? In 36, Paul picks it up and says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Commentators agree that there's a tone of frustration in Paul's expression as he confronts the independent, prideful superiority that characterized this church. Paul is essentially asking if they think they're the founders of the faith, or if they think they're the only ones who possess the truth, or if they think they've cornered the market on truth. Continuing his chastisement, Paul asserts his apostolic authority in verse 37, reminding them in no uncertain terms that his words are the words of Christ. He writes, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Paul's next pronouncement is very, very weighty and shouldn't be glossed over too quickly. Paul's statement in verse 38 is addressed to those in the preceding verse who refuse to recognize Christ's authority in Paul's words. One cannot claim that Paul's apostolic words were not of the Spirit of Christ while simultaneously claiming to be of the Spirit themselves. And Paul declares 
if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, the word translated recognized could also be translated to know or be known. And many commentators believe Paul's statement in verse 38 harkens back to Paul's statement in chapter 8, verse 3, where Paul wrote, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If this is true, then the sense of Paul's statement in verse 38 is that the one rejecting Paul is not recognized by God. In other words, verse 38 isn't a directive for the church community to deny the so-called prophet the opportunity to speak, but a sobering warning of God's final judgment. What Paul is essentially saying to those who rejected the divine authority by which he spoke is that God will permanently reject them. It's a throwback to Jesus' words in Matthew 7.23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this brings us to Paul's final encouragement and closing principle in verse 39 and 40, where, returning his attention to the faithful among his readers, Paul writes, So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, before closing, I want want to bring a final observation one final application to your attention. What I want to ask you is, do you remember those Russian nesting dolls? Have you seen those before as a kid? Usually they're wooden, and you open them up, and there's a tiny one inside, and you put the tiny one inside, the slightly less tiny one, and that inside another, and these things kind of stack, and then they all screw up, and there's a kind of one container that contain them all. Well, that's a little bit of how the principles or themes in today's complicated passage work. As I mentioned earlier in the message, The principal idea of the text is this. Let all things be done orderly in order to build up the church. That's the thread that stitches together Paul's train of thought in the second half of this chapter. The key factors in operation are order, self-control, and a concern for others. But this idea is nested inside an even bigger idea, and that's the notion that the orderliness Paul emphasizes flows out of the harmony and orderliness of God's character. This was exposed most vividly when we looked at verse 33. God is not scattered or conflicted, but is in harmony with himself. And therefore, two things are true. God never acts in contradiction to his own character. And two, God's character is always displayed in the means God prescribes to achieve his purposes. We also saw that a practical application of the doctrine of submission is an essential component of how we are to conduct ourselves amidst the church. But all of this fits inside an even bigger idea, which I don't want you to miss. In prior messages, we mentioned the primacy of chapter 13 to everything Paul says about the church in chapters 11 through 14. So it's imperative, it's absolutely critical that we don't disconnect everything we said today from the primacy of love. In other words, the ultimate, in other words, the ultimate reason Paul advances the notion of order, self-control, and concern for others 
is because this is the very soil in which spirit-enabled love flourishes among the body. Love will not flourish. Love will not flourish where there is chaos, confusion, and the pursuit of self. Love won't flourish when we ignore the structures and the hierarchies of God's created order that he has bequeathed to the church. So while there are many important truths Paul advances in our text, we have to tie all of these back to Paul's charge that opened the chapter. Pursue love. What today's text makes apparent is that the authentic, supernatural love that we're commanded to pursue will in fact remain outside of our experience if we insist on inventing our own definition of how God's covenant community is to function. As Paul warned, if we fail to recognize and apply Christ's command communicated through the Apostle Paul, then Christ will not recognize us. Let me pray. Father, I know that we've said much and we've been many places over these last uh, number of minutes. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be able to get our arms around this, Lord, and return to the single principle of, of love, our command to love, not, not by way of our own efforts, but by way of the supernatural work of your Spirit within us. And in doing so, Lord, may we recognize the importance of living out your covenant community in the way that you have prescribed. And let us ponder these things, Lord, and sink them deep within our minds so that we would be faithful to be the body that you've called us to be. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.